11. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, going to verse 11, hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead, and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. A beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be looking at this text today with this theme, both uh, today and Lord willing two weeks from now, this two-part series on this section in which Christ commends the church for its faithfulness in troublous times. Christ commends the church for its faithfulness in troublous times. Now what do people think of when they think of the church or a church? Well, I dare say that most people think of a building, a nice, pretty edifice, maybe one of those Gothic structures down on Peachtree Street, possibly. A place to meet nice little people. Lots of programs, especially in terms of community service. But, my friends, we have a different picture in our text, do we not? As Christ commends the church in Smyrna. It is not an emphasis on nickels, numbers, and noise. It is not an emphasis on fancy buildings, not at all. It is not an emphasis on programs. It is not an emphasis on the, the outward things that people often think about. But rather, it is an emphasis on faithfulness, but with this theme of the church militant. The church militant, the church at war. We are the church at war. We are engaged in war. And that's the picture that we have here with regard to Smyrna. Now, this sermon is part of a continuing series on the book of Revelation. We've already seen the risen Christ as he rules gloriously in the midst of the seven golden lampstands or candlesticks. Each of the letters will pick up a part of the description of Christ found in chapter 1. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's a real theme. There's a weaving together. It's a beautiful, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's a beautiful piece of literature 
that John has written for us here. And so each of the letters will pick up a part of the description of Christ from chapter 1. Now last time, we considered the church in Ephesus, which as you know, had not just lost, but had left its first love. What a horrible thing. The almost perfect church. Almost perfect. (coughs) But not perfect at all. Because it had left its first love. And again, I come back, my friends, to that theme from last week and just say we need, as we come to the Lord's table next, we need to examine ourselves. Have we left our first love? Well, today then, we look at the church in Smyrna, but before we do that, we want to consider just for a few moments the city itself. Now, Smyrna, now you remember, we, we're starting in southwestern Asia Minor. We're going around clockwise, going around a circle here, these seven churches, these seven cities. So starting in the southwest part of what is today present-day Turkey, and then we're going, we're, we're continuing up clockwise from about the sub-clock position or so up to maybe o'clock as we're round the clock face, if you will. So we're going from, we've gone from Ephesus now we're headed up to Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was a beautiful metropolis, a beautiful city. It was the jewel of Asia Minor. I was speaking with an old seminary friend of mine who uh, is also is a professor in seminary now. He just got back from Latvia, and he was telling me about the capital, Riga, called the, the jewel of the Baltic, or the Paris of the Baltic. Well, Smyrna was the jewel of Asia Minor. And there's a reference, actually, to the crown of Smyrna. Because from the sea, from the sea, from the, from, uh, the ocean there, as it were, from the sea, people looking at Smyrna with its stately public buildings on the rounded top of the hill, Pagos, P-A-G-O-S, and the city spreading down its rounded, sloping sides, thought of it as being crowned. Crowned. Isn't that interesting? And of course, you'll see in verse 10, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, how that theme of crown is going to be picked up on. Smyrna was noted for its magnificent games, like the Olympics that are going on right now in Tokyo. It was known for its magnificent games at which the victor would wear a garland, would wear uh, like a crown, right? Wear a garland. Now what's also interesting is that Smyrna, for almost 300 years, virtually ceased to exist. It was destroyed around 600 B.C. and was not rebuilt until about 290 B.C. Truly, it was a city that had been dead and now was alive, which, of course, is exactly what's referred to here in terms of Christ in a much much deeper and significant way. He who had been dead and was now alive. Smyrna, furthermore, prided itself on its faithfulness. First, 
as a Greek city that stubbornly held out against the Roman invasion, but then, having been subdued by Rome, then its faithfulness as a Roman city to the Roman Empire, casting in its lot early on with this budding empire. When a Roman army was shivering in the cold during a war campaign, the citizens of Smyrna shed their own clothes to send them to the front. It was a place where a great temple was built for the cult of emperor worship. And so the theme of faithfulness that, again, the Lord Jesus is going to pick up on, but, of course, apply it in the genuine sense with regard to the church at Smyrna. And speaking of that church, it was possibly founded by Paul himself on one of his missionary journeys. It was a place that was surrounded by hostile religious forces. Hostile religious forces. First of all, the Jews. All throughout the book of Acts, you see the Jews over and over again. We read this in, uh, from uh, Acts 13 today about how the Jews, particularly those honorable women, stirred things up against the apostles. And so over and over again, we see the Jews then here wanting to court Rome's favor in opposition to, being in opposition to the early church. These Jews were most likely among the elite of the city. They especially hated the Christians. But then, of course, you also had the pagan religion. Smyrna, as we noted, was one of the centers of emperor worship. That is, say, burning incense to the emperor, burning incense to the Caesar. In other words, saying, oh, yes, you, I mean, this is the whole thing with regard to Christianity. This is why Christianity was, was persecuted. It wasn't that Rome cared about folks being religious. Oh, it was just one among many gods. But it was the fact that Christians were supposed to recognize Caesar as king. And they said, no, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. That's what this was all about. And so in numerous ways, there was pressure that was going to be brought to bear upon Christians to burn, you know, just burn a little incense. That's all you have to do. Because in doing so, they would be subjugating themselves and, sub and sub uh, subjugating, as it were, Christ to Caesar. And that, of course, they could not do. And so Smyrna, then, was one of the centers of emperor worship. Religious authorities invoked the aid of civil authorities to suppress Christianity. Some of you may know the name Polycarp, P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P, Polycarp. He was a martyr who was burned at the stake in the middle of the second century. So children, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what it took for Polycarp to be burned at the stake. He was an older man to be burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus. Would you be willing to be burned at the stake for Jesus? Jesus calls us to that, if need be. But that's what Polycarp suffered. He was burned at the stake in the middle of the second century. Apparently, he was one of this church's early leaders. 
Well, with that as a background, then, let's look at the introduction of the text found in verse 8 to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. We've noted the word angel, of course, means messenger. It's quite possible that this is possibly it's a reference to a preacher, pastor, but it could also be, I've suggested, maybe it's the presbyters as a whole, uh, taken as a group, as a collective, and I've also suggested uh, that at least in some of these cases it may not be simply a congregation, but it may be a group of congregations, it may be a presbytery to which Jesus is writing. But in any case, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, to the leaders there, to the elders, or to the pastor, and who is writing? These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. And so he is the first and the last. And this idea, then, of Jesus being the first and the last points to his absolute deity. He is God. He is God. Come in the flesh. It's similar to what we found uh, earlier in terms uh, in Revelation, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So the A and the Z, we would say. Alpha and Omega, first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And again, verse 17 of chapter 1, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Jesus, you see, is, com is, is boldly coming and declaring that he is God and he is the Lord, Caesar is not. But then also notice how he identifies himself, the one who was dead or who became dead and has come to life. And my friends, Jesus Christ actually died and was buried. The crucifixion is well attested. And his burial is also well attested in the record. Uh, you find in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, what we might consider the gospel in a nutshell where Paul writes, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He doesn't end there. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He goes on to say he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, with five hundred brethren at once. This is well attested as an historical fact. Why is it important to say that he, was, that he was not only buried, but he's actually dead? Well, this is no swoon theory. The idea that liberals have come up with in the past, that, well, Jesus just seemed to be dead, and he was placed in the grave, and then he suddenly somehow revived three days later. No, my friends. He was dead. The soldier took that spear and stuck it in him. And out of there, out of his breast, gushed blood and water. He was dead without a doubt. Is also his burial is also the finality of his humiliation. But then he actually rose from the dead in a real physical, bodily resurrection. The resurrection is not just a spiritual uh, reality like Casper the ghost. No, my friends, the whole point of resurrection is that it is bodily. It is physical 
his body rose from the dead. And the words, therefore, which follow are comfort. They are comfort for the church, particularly the persecuted church. They are comfort because they come from one who passed through the portals of death, but still lived. And so in that regard, then, let us consider the first major point of this text that we'll be considering today, then, that of encouragement. Encouragement. Notice what Jesus, verse 9, I know. I know. He has knowledge of the troubles. You know that old, that old spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I'm seeing. Nobody knows but Jesus. Well, my friends, that's true. That is true. It is true. And that's what we find here. He knows. Jesus says, I know all that you're going through. He knows all of your troubles. He's quite aware of all your trials and tribulations. He knows all things. He knows everything that is troubling you today. Financial woes. Family turmoil. Health issues. We've had a number of prayer requests today with regard to health. He knows. Job situations. We've had some prayers of thanksgiving today. He knew about those. He provided for that need. He knows about persecution that may come our way. And he knows about the sin and temptation that you and I face. And so he says, I know. This then should be, should especially be of great encouragement to the entire church body. Jesus cares for the whole body. He cares for the church as a whole. And he cares for each individual member. We can take comfort from the truth of Romans 8.28 in terms of, of uh, how uh, the Apostle Paul says there in Romans 8. And verse 28, for all things, we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And Jesus here says, I know. What does he know? He says, I know your works. I know your works, your good deeds. Now, my friends, good works are good. Good works are good as they are performed through Christ and accepted in him. Sanctification entails doing good, and we are to do good. And furthermore, let us note that objectively speaking, some deeds are good and some are not. So how do you know what's good and what's not? According to the word of God, he determines that which is good and that which is wood, hay, and stubble. But he says here, I know your works there, you believers, you brothers and sisters in Smyrna, I know. But I also know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. You know, Christ promised persecution. That's not a promise we like to think about very much. 
but he promised it, those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The word used here refers to being in narrow straits. It means being subject to almost unbearable pressure from the world, like being squeezed. Think of something, think of, of, a, of a, a device to, to squeeze that lemon or squeeze that lime. That's sort of the picture here. And that squeezing, that pressure, refers to all sorts of temptations, therefore, to abandon the faith. My friends, following Christ is not easy. Don't think that you can come to Christ and all your troubles will be over. They've just begun. Following Christ is not easy. It requires commitment. You have to take up your cross, Jesus said. It requires precision as well in terms of our doctrine. It requires accuracy, <coughs> more so than, than a skilled surgeon. It requires accuracy, does it not, in terms of our doctrine. There are all kinds of temptations to compromise with regard to the exclusive nature of Christ. Think of the three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Prophet. Well, isn't there truth in other religions? The world would tell us. No. What about priest? Aren't there more ways to God? No. What about king? Trying to carve out areas of autonomy, that is to say, where we have our own rule, where we do not recognize Christ's rule, or where the world does not recognize the reign of King Jesus over all things. No, not right. But those are among the compromises that we face. We face in the world. We face in academia. We face in schools today. But Jesus knows all about that. I know, he says. But he also says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. Now here, it is quite possible that this poverty that he's referring to is that of being left destitute because of the gospel. Left destitute because of the gospel and the persecution. Economic hardships for refusing to participate in pagan worship. Quite possibly the confiscations of property. One commentator hooks him up, put it this way, quote, perhaps they gathered for public worship in a miserable little shanty of a church. Perhaps they could not even decently provide for the necessity of the church's pastor. They were impoverished, and Jesus says, I know. But he also says, I know about the blasphemy. That is to say, the slander against them as believers trying to destroy their reputations. But not just the slander against them, of course, because the ultimate target was the Lord Jesus Christ. The actual blasphemy against God, using God's name in vain, slandering the Lord Jesus. I know, Jesus says, about these blasphemies. 
Who were these people who were blaspheming? Well, he identifies them. Those who say they are Jews and are not. They say that they are Jews. They say that they are Jews. Because of their heritage, they claimed to be Jews. That is to say, the people of God, in contrast to the claim laid by the church. The Pharisees, you remember, in Jesus' day said, we have Abraham as our father. But Jesus here says they claim to be Jews, but they are not. Paul reminds us that not all of those who are physically descended from Abraham were true Israel. There's a distinction, is there not? There was always only a remnant, remnant theology, always only a certain percentage, many times a small percentage of those who were physical descendants who actually were united to God through Christ. So they were Jews by birth, proud of that to be, we are Jews. We have Abraham to our father, proud of that. Jews by birth, but not by faith. And actually, as Jesus here says, they were a synagogue of Satan. Like their father, the devil, these Jews would have despised the person and work of Messiah denouncing him as a crucified criminal, despising and ridiculing faith in him, and the idea of justification not by our works, but by means of faith through grace. Indeed, they were openly pagan in their orientation, joining with the world when convenient. You remember what the Jews said? when they were turning Jesus over to be crucified and Pontius Pilate was trying desperately not to have Christ crucified, I'll just, I'll just uh, uh, you know, uh, torture him a bit and let him go. What did the Jews say? We have no king but Caesar. Denying Yahweh, denying Jehovah, denying the Lord. Joining with the world when convenient. And of course, being of Satan, who is the accuser, they would accuse and slander the brethren. Now, this doesn't sound like a lot of great things here, does it, that we've just been taught? How can we talk about it being encouraging? Well, for two reasons. First of all, because Jesus says, I know. I know. I see, I hear, I know all that you've been going through. But furthermore, he gives another little encouragement in the dark, a light in the dark. I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. You are rich. That is to say, in the midst of outward poverty, you are spiritually rich. As a matter of fact, you are rich in every way. You're rich in your knowledge of the truth. What a blessing that is. Think of the world. Good night. Think of the world today. Think of what of the idiocy, of the lunacy in academia and in other places, in the media. Think of it. 
blind leaders of the blind. But you have the knowledge of the truth. You therefore are rich. You're, you're able to display your works and your patience. You're rich in terms of those things that will count on the day of judgment. You're rich in terms of your strong spiritual life of bearing the cross, of being willing to suffer for Jesus. You are rich in your experiential knowledge and growth therein. Now why is it, we may ask, why is it that the persecuted church then is strong and rich in this regard? Well, let me give you three reasons. First of all, a theological reason. And it is to manifest, to reveal, to declare the grace, power, and glory of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, and he says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base or lowly things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So there's a theological reason for this particular richness that is brought forth. That is to say, to glorify God, to show that it is all by his grace, not by our own Secondly, there's a spiritual reason. Where you see the more conscious the church is of faith, the more she will grow in grace and knowledge. The more conscious the church is of faith and the need for faith. The faith that is it not just affirms in a sort of matter-of-fact way who Jesus is in his resurrection, but the faith that in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of persecution, is able to lay hold on Jesus by faith. That faith, that real faith, that living faith. And the more conscious that the church is of faith, the more she will grow in grace and knowledge and increase her spiritual riches. But then thirdly, there's an historical reason. Because, my friends, let us face it, tribulation roots out hypocrites. Tribulation roots out hypocrites. For hypocrites do not join a church that is true, a true church, or remain in that church when persecution and membership go hand in hand. Think about that. Would you, would you join a club and, and uh, the, the president of the club says, well, by the way, now that you've joined, you're going to be facing persecution. But that's actually what we are called to as members of the church. If you're not willing to be persecuted for Jesus' sake, don't join the church. Don't be a hypocrite. And so there's an historical reason as well. So I have two major points of application today. The first is this. Beware. Beware. Be aware of the wickedness of false churches. McKnight was a commentator, Reformed Presbyterian commentator on the book of Revelation. 
And he said, quote, When the church and the world agree, the time has come for the child of God to prepare for martyrdom. When the church and the world agree, the time has come for the child of God to prepare for martyrdom. That doesn't mean that church and state cannot cooperate on any given matter. We can think of child protection. We think of a number of, of issues where there, there are overlapping uh, authorities and overlapping concerns with regard to the two spheres of church and state. But whenever church authorities go along with, or we say religious authorities, go along with civil authorities who are walking according to the ways of this world, that is to say, this world system, according to the prince of the power of the air, you better watch out. This persecution is coming. Beware the wickedness of false churches. How can you tell a false church? A religious institution may lay claim to many things, but still be false. It can claim great antiquity, being old, but not solidly built on the rock of ages. It can claim apostolic succession, an unbroken line of ordination from the time of the apostles, but not apostolic doctrine. That, of course, is what we find in the Anglican Church today, the Anglican Communion. Apostolic secession, but rejecting apostolic doctrine. Or a great name and heritage, such as Presbyterian. But many, most Presbyterian churches today deny the essentials of faith and are false, therefore. And so a religious institution may lay claim to many things but still be false. Remember that the marks of a church, the distinguishing characteristics of a church are preaching, genuine preaching, the true administration of the sacraments, and genuine and biblical church discipline. What are some examples of wickedness? The promoting of open immorality, such as abortion and homosexuality. Think of the churches here in Atlanta. Think of the churches here in Atlanta. Many of them openly promoting homosexuality. Idolatry, false worship, false ways in which to worship, not according to divine command. And, of course, denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So beware, my friends, the wickedness of false churches. But then secondly and finally, be rich in Christ. Be rich today. Be rich. Don't you want to be rich? It's not money. It's all of these things that will last for all eternity, the true gold and silver that will last for all eternity. Be rich in Christ as you live your life in a way that brings honor to him, as you suffer persecution for him, as you go through impoverishment, perhaps, for him, as you, as you deal with the arrows that are, that are 
hurled your way the words of blasphemy against you and ultimately against Christ. As you go through those experiences, look to Christ, depend upon him, and be rich in Christ. And when you are, Jesus will say to you, I know. I know. I know you. And I'm there with you. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take this word and would apply it to each heart. Lord, thy Spirit searches the heart. Thou dost know who we are and what we're thinking. And so may we indeed be united to Christ, be genuine in that commitment, and be rich in and through Christ. Keep us from sin and temptation, and as thou wouldst, O Lord, be pleased to keep us from persecution, if possible. Give us the grace to go through it, if we must. We thank thee, Lord, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.